So we are in Exodus chapter 4. We're going to read today, or talk about today, uh, several things um, that might come under the banner of being miracles. Uh, Certainly the miraculous. Uh, In fact, the whole book of uh, Exodus uh, has many examples of God's power and and the miracles uh, regarding that. Uh, as we think about where this narrative is heading uh, and all of the signs and wonders that are going to happen, probably one of the most miraculous things that we see uh, woven throughout this whole thing is the fact that God is directly communicating with Moses and directly communicates uh, with him throughout the book. And when we finished up chapter 3, I kind of extracted several statements that God made uh, that we kind of generalized uh, the things that not only he was saying to Moses, but things that by extension that he could be saying to us. In verse 7, of, I'm backing up to chapter 3 here, God says in essence, I've heard you. The verse says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. So we can learn that God responds to the prayers and needs of his people. In verse 10, God says, come, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And I mentioned uh, in... Uh, tip of the hat to Dr. Blackaby, God's is, in essence is saying, I'm inviting you to go beyond what you are currently involved in and to join me in my work. In verse 12, he says, I will be with you. He's given him a task and he says, I'm going to be with you to do what I prepared for you to do. In verse 14, he says, I am. The ultimate statement of authority and power saying, I am powerful enough to do the things that I say I'm going to do. And in verse 17, which I don't know why, but it just just seems so uh, powerful and at the same time so um, heartfelt and intimate, he says, I promise. I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt. In other words, I'm committed enough to do what I say I'm going to do. So as we go through chapter 4, I want you to be listening for similar statements that God is making. Maybe not these exact ones, but that type of message. And at the end, we're going to try to pick those out. All right. So, you know, throughout this, you know, throughout the whole Bible, God is revealing himself to us. And in these passages especially, he is definitely revealing himself to us. So let's look for those um, messages woven throughout uh, this story of God's working out his plan. In chapter 3, we had the burning bush, God's call to Moses, and now we have the lead up to what's actually going to happen. All right, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me, or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. 
And the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it, which of course is the only logical thing to do. <laughs> but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail, which of course is not the logical thing to do. So in a, in a sudden burst of obedience, which we don't always see from Moses, but in a sudden burst of obedience, he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. the full sentence, put out your hand and catch it by the tail, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Here's the first sign of, it's kind of, I think God's trying to kind of be easy with him. Um, you're going to see this being worked out for three audiences. Now, the stated audience right now is God showing something to Moses so that he can demonstrate it and demonstrate God's power and authority to the people of Israel, right? Because it starts off in verse 1, Moses saying, but they will not believe me. So he's talking, you know, Moses is concerned about going back and why are the Israelites going to believe him? It's been 40 years since he was there. So one of the audiences is to the people of Israel. But I think probably the number one audience for the moment is who? Moses himself, right? You know, just Moses himself getting it. Okay, I see how this is going to work. Um, God says do things and, and they happen. And, and if I do what he says he's going to do, you know, I've got tangible evidence. So the first one is the staff being changed to a serpent. Sign number two, verse six. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, his hand was leprous like snow. Uh, they debate, you know, leprosy in general was used as almost a catch-all of almost any nasty skin disease. But in any event, his hand was leprous like snow. He had something really nasty on his skin. God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Okay, so now I got really personal, right? Uh, okay, God, I get it. That was sign number two. Verse eight. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign, and if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. We know that the Egyptians regarded the Nile River with uh, special reverence and um, uh, source of life and productivity and, um, in a way, I guess, rightly so, but showing that God had power over even that great resource obviously would have been of great um, uh, impact upon them. Verse 10, now in spite of these three very potent signs that God is, has kind of prepared him with, to, to, to these, these signs to take with him, so to speak, 
Moses is still not quite, not quite there because he says to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant because I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Moses came saying, I've got this thing. I've got, we don't know what his complaint was, what his speech was. Some people have said maybe he stuttered. Some people have said maybe he had been hanging out with the shepherd so long. He had lost his, his eloquence. Um, I'll never forget when after spending uh, four years in college hanging out with a, a bunch of Midwesterners who wanted to be broadcasters, I, I lost a little of my southern accent. Uh, around that time I got married and took my bride down to Louisiana where she promptly lost her Midwestern accent. So that when we went to Kansas City from our residency, people were a little confused as to who was the native from Kansas City and who wasn't. Um, it didn't take long for them to figure it out, of course. But uh, yes, maybe, maybe that was the reason Moses had, had uh, said, you know, I'm not going to convince them. I don't sound like an Egyptian anymore. I don't, you know, what kind of authority am I going to bring? I sound like a hick. I sound like a shepherd. Well, they're not going to respect me. For whatever reason, he was hesitant. And again, his final plea in verse 13, oh my Lord, please send someone else. So verse 14, you kind of get the notion that God's thinking, you know, I've really been patient. <laughs> I've, really been, I've really been patient. And he says, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. I think the, the concept here is that if Moses had really bought into the task, he could have figured it out, right? He could have figured that out. You know, if I get in a spot, I could call my brother. You know, if, you, if your task was something, it's natural to kind of look around Okay, who's going to help me pull this off? So that tells me Moses had not really taken ownership of this task yet, right? He had not gotten to that next level of saying, okay, I'm going to do this. What do I need to make it happen? Maybe I should call my brother. Uh, he, had, he had not gotten to that himself. And, Moses, and it seems like God's saying, have you not thought about asking Aaron? Have you not thought of that? It's kind of funny, God's saying, I know that he can speak well, and here he is. He's coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. That is an interesting phrase, right? I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. There's probably a lot in there that we could unpack. I'm not sure um, 
I'm, I'm not sure what all's in there, but it sounds like a lot. Verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth. Another interesting phrase, and you shall be as God to him. So here's the way this is going to work, Moses. Here's Aaron. I'm going to be with his mouth. I'm going to be with your mouth too. And we've, we know from later on that actually Moses gives some pretty amazing speeches himself, as we'll see. But he says, I'll teach you what to do. He'll speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So, yes, you're going to have some help here, but let's not get confused as to how the flow of the authority is going to happen. Okay? Uh, so, Moses, just because you've got help doesn't mean you get to pass off the tough decisions to Aaron. He's there to help you. You've got this speech thing, whatever it is. But, but yeah, he's going to be your mouthpiece. But you're going to be as God to him. You're going to be speaking to him for me. Just to be clear. Yeah? It strikes me that not only was God preparing him to lead him out of Egypt, but the greater task was when they got out of Egypt. And I think God was preparing him for that because that was the big challenge. Excellent point. For those who didn't hear, God was not only preparing Moses for what was going to happen when he got to Egypt, but even more so what was he was going to need to do as he led them out of Egypt. I think that's an excellent point, Larry. In verse 17, and don't forget your staff. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Yo, by the way, Moses, don't forget your staff. I'm not going to tell you exactly, but it's going to come in handy down the road. You'll need it for more than one. You'll, you'll need it. You're going to need this. There is that. Art, don't you think uh, that Moses just reflects most everybody down through history, including us, God gives us a task to do, which he does, you know, if we allow him to direct our lives. One of the first things most everybody says is, but I can't do that, Lord. Yeah, it's, there was a, a, a notation about this concept. The way I paraphrased it is, it is possible to generally want to do the right thing and still be hesitant, right? It's not black and white, you know? Um, you know, sometimes, uh, I'm sure maybe there were times as, as a kid, I, I can't think of a specific example, but I know myself, there were probably times I got directions to do a particular thing and maybe hesitated, maybe hesitated a little too long, and that might have been interpreted as not wanting to do something, but you can, it can all be in the same package, right? It's not always black and white. You can generally want to do the right thing, but still be hesitant or afraid or whatever. And Moses does reflect all of that. One commentator said, 
One of the main themes addressed in this passage is God's call to Moses and Moses' reluctance to answer that call. His reluctance seems to be a cross between true humility. I think we can see that, right? I think there was some true humility there. Number two, an appreciation for the difficulties that will confront him in his role, right? He, he's not an idiot. He knows this is not going to be easy. He is being asked to do something tough. And thirdly, simple stubbornness, right? So I think that your point is very well taken and one that I uh, can certainly relate to. Um, I am... Um, I, I usually get to where I need to get to, but I'm not saying I'm always quick on the trigger. Verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. What do you think about that verse? What does that tell us about Moses and Jethro? Okay, so there was some respect there. Moses said, you know, I need to go um, basically get permission to, to leave, to get his leave. Um, he had been working for him for 40 years. Um, Probably a sizable flock, I would assume. Moses, after a while, you get to be pretty good at something if you do it for 40 years. Um, but what do you think about this, this reason slash excuse slash explanation for why he needs to leave? Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. I mean, God just told them they're still alive. Right. So, exactly. So, why doesn't he just tell Jethro the real reason? He's still not sure that he wants to. Maybe you think he's still got an out? What? Maybe he wants his daddy to say no. He wants his father-in-law to say, no, you can't go. Perhaps he doesn't really think that Jethro would believe him. I mean, if I were walking and God said... There's a burning bush, and then he gave me those directions. I would be fearful to tell him when they think I was crazy. <laughs> you know, I thought about a lot of those things. I think you may be right. You know, he, surely Moses thought about this. Okay, I need to go talk to Jethro. I need to ask slash tell him I need to leave. If I don't give him a reason, he's going to want to know something. If I tell him I'm going to take the people out of Egypt, he's, he is never going to believe that. He's seen me the last 40 years. He knows me. He, you know, he's never seen me lead anything that, you know, doesn't bleep. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tell him I'm going back to to see some family. Maybe, That's maybe when he told Jeff that. Maybe so. I don't know. And, you know, the thing is, you know, I, I honestly don't know. Maybe Dad knows where Aaron all, was all this time prior to meeting. You know, had, I, I assume he was still in Egypt and God had called Aaron out of Egypt. And they met, it said they met um, on, the, on Mount Sinai. We're, we're going to get to that. Um, 
but anyway, for I, I think that's an interesting passage. I, I, I think Moses just said, yeah, I'm, I need to go back. Um, it is interesting, though. Uh, you'll remember in chapter 2, um, when Moses was still in Pharaoh's court, and he just had this compulsion to go out and to see how his people, how the Israelites were doing, right? So in a way, I think it's verse 11 in chapter 2, kind of does foreshadow this. So it may have been that Moses, that may have been partially true in essence, that he did want to go back and in general and, and check on these people. But I, I think uh, he, he just did want to get into the whole thing with Jethro. Um, maybe he had doubts about whether he could pull it off and didn't want to build it up too much. I don't know, but uh, I think it's interesting that he gave a different reason. So, verse 20. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped an important verse, verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So this is also interesting because Moses has already been told to go back to Egypt. He's already been told that God's going to handle it. Um, and here's just... In one way, you could say, well, God's saying, you know, it's safe for you to go back. But at the same time, you don't ever really get the impression that God has implied that this is necessarily going to be a trip with lots of safety involved. Um, uh, some people have suggested that there's a verb tense that uh, apparently doesn't exist in Hebrew, in Hebrew, but where when it says, and the Lord said to Moses... You could use a phrasing, and the Lord had said previously to Moses. Apparently, the Hebrew can go either way on that. Uh, in any event, and that would put that phrasing ahead of um, uh, some of the other verses. But for whatever reason, uh, he says, the people who were seeking your life are dead. One way to think about this is God's message to Moses that the deliverance has already begun. I'm already working. I'm already, I'm already in there. I'm already down there. Um, the deliverance, in essence, has already begun, um, and it started with you. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, went back to the land of Egypt, and he remembered his staff. <laughs> I thought that. Uh, yeah, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It is interesting. We, we hear that it says wife and sons. We really don't hear about the second son until explicitly until chapter 18. But uh, we're going we're gonna to visit that son uh, in a moment. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Right, So we had the miracles to Moses himself. We had the miracles that he's going to show to the people of Israel. And now God's saying, um, show them to Pharaoh. And then, for not the first time, I'm sorry, for not the last time, and probably the first time, we have this big unsettling statement or concept that puts together, as we often see in Scripture, these stumbling blocks, this tension between 
our apparent free will to decide the things that we want to do and God's sovereignty and his overwhelming ability to bring to pass the things that he wants to bring to pass and the times where it seems that God's sovereignty overrides our right of free will. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I'm going to show you miracles of power to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, but I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't be inclined to let my people go. wonder why he's done that. Mike? I, mean, I got to that, and I said, wonder why all this planning and everything was falling in place, and he says, then I'm not, I'm not going to let you let him go. The level of discomfort that all of us feel when these two concepts come into tension um, uh, it's, 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 it's quite high, right? Um, it's hard to make sense of, of this. Um, ultimately, uh, you have to come back, and I guess this is as good a time as any. Uh, if you flip over to Romans chapter 9, where Paul addresses some of this, and he actually quotes this, Scenario, if you look in uh, verse 14, and of course, all of chapter 9 is, is Paul going back and forth, uh, this concept that God calls us to himself for his own reasons, that, that, that he is the one who initiates this call of salvation upon our lives, and at the same time, uh, you know, why, who calls who, and so forth. And our response in verse 14 of, of 9 is, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, he says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Not, by the way, Paul, just FYI, that doesn't really clear it up for us. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is hard stuff. In fact, I'm a little resentful that this came in chapter 4 and not next week when Daddy could have dealt with it. <laughs> there is injustice all over the place. Yes? If Pharaoh's heart had not been hardened, then the glory would have gone to he and Moses for releasing yes. the people. As it was, God got to display all of his power and his I, I think ultimately that's always going to be one of the best, if not the best answer, Pat, that... God works it out so that he gets maximum glory, right? 
if you are God and you are ultimate love, ultimate power, ultimate beauty, the only thing worthy of worship, in a twist of logic that's probably hard for humans to understand, the best thing a God could do would be to bring glory to a God like that himself, right? So if, if the workings of, of this um, result in greater glory for him, that has to be the right answer. Of course, we, we're right there in verse 19, still in Romans, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? So in other words, well, if it's all about God's glory, that's great, but, but why is it my fault that... Or if you have family members that have never come to Christ... Yeah, how do you put that together? You begin to wonder, why, are they, why is their heart so hard? Exactly. It's very difficult to... It is. To want to discuss that with God. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay? I think the way to think about it is this potter, who you might picture as impersonable, making some great pots and some bad pots and having the freedom to toss aside whichever pots he chooses, that's the same potter who also looks on Israel and by extension us and says, you're my firstborn son. And just like you can answer some of the mystery by saying God's working it out for his glory, you also have to do it and say God's working it out because he is a daddy who loves us, who knows all this other stuff that's going on, and we have to trust that it's working out the way it would have worked out. Um, this probably won't be the last time that we'll wrestle with this. I, the, one commentator made the point that in some ways, now Paul is kind of the exception here because he reflects much of our consternation about this, but most of the writers of Scripture have an easier time of yielding all that to God than we do, right? Our Western minds that want all the logic to fit we have a hard time with dual concepts that kind of need to live together, albeit with some tension, but our Western minds, we don't, it's hard for us to hold two things and let them sit there and accept both to be true and accept both to be okay. It's hard for us. Um, and it just is. Uh, I, I certainly, uh, you know, today we're not going to, camp there any longer than we have, but I have to acknowledge that this is the first time we've encountered this concept. It won't be the last. Verse 24. Uh, here we get a little whiplash. Back in chapter 4 of Exodus. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. 
Any questions? <laughs> Maybe we should just move on. No. Um, so if you have the NIV, I'll at least make this notation. Here's the way the NIV puts it. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Now, you see what happened? The NIV actually tiptoed across the line of translation to interpretation because they thought this was so confusing. So the word for word is, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Apparently it is not real clear who the him is. Right? Um, so you kind of have to just work it out, and one of the ways it makes sense is to say that it was Moses, but this is just an example where occasionally um, a, a translation team will tiptoe across the line toward an interpretation uh, as an editorial choice. So this is just an example of, of where, um, you know, the NIV, a great translation, but uh, occasionally does proceed to some interpretation there. That um, probably is the best way to make it make sense. Back in Genesis, oh gosh, we better hurry up. Back in Genesis 17, Verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which, shall, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. When the scripture isn't clear, what do people do? You speculate a little bit. The speculation is a story probably goes something like this. Um, Moses had two sons, probably in keeping with a covenant, had done the circumcision on the first one. Maybe it kind of freaked his wife out. So much so he didn't want to deal with that again, so had not circumcised his second son. So he kind of failed as the leader of the home there. He apparently has chosen to ignore his responsibility. God says, wait a minute. Yeah, I know I've called you to do this big thing, but covenants are important to me. And it says God sought to put him to death. So then the wife does what her husband should have done and does a circumcision. And I guess by way of extension or proxy or something, you know, touches Moses' feet with it. Um, and nobody knows what this bridegroom of blood phrase means. Verse 27. Then the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God. What's the mountain of God? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. <laughs> Equal credit for Mount Horeb. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Verse 28, And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. 
Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. Right? So somewhere between verse 28 and verse 29, uh, they make it down the mountain and all the way to Egypt. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. When they heard that God had visited them, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So, what is God saying to us in this passage? Verse 8. If they won't believe you, and then they get, he starts giving out the signs. In other words, he's saying, I think, I will prepare you for the task that I've given to you. I'm not going to tell you to do something without preparing you for it. I will prepare you. Verse 12, more explicitly, God is saying, I will be with you and will teach you. Verse 12 says, now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So God's saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to teach you. Again, I've got things for you to do. I'm going to be with you. Verse 21, where we looked at this hardening of Pharaoh. I think from that I, I hear God basically saying, I am going to do some things that you are not going to understand. I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna do some things that you're not gonna understand. I know it doesn't make sense. I'm gonna show my power. Favor's gonna resist that power. I'm gonna show my power some more. It's not always gonna make sense. Verse 24, the circumcision incident. What's God saying? Covenants matter to me. Covenants matter to me. They are serious things. In verse 31, we see it happening. God's will will be done. What does God want? He wants, to, he wants us to know that he hears us. He wants us to believe. He wants to redeem us. And he wants us to worship him. Is that any different from Exodus 4 than February 2019? It's all the same. We've all been given different challenges. We've all been given different preps. We've all been given different information along the way. But ultimately, we're supposed to believe our Father who calls us his firstborn through Christ. And we're supposed to worship him. I don't you think two words that really says it all is written in the hymn. Trust and obey. That's what he asked us to do. Trust yeah. him and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be. Maybe that's our benediction. Father, we thank you that you are worthy and worthy and worthy of all of our worship and praise. We thank you that through Jesus we can be your sons and daughters. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.